The scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. It can be found on page 894 in the Black Bibles. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke to them in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Bailey. Thanks, Caleb. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It's great to have all of you here with us this morning. Um, We are continuing our study in the book of John. We're going to be in John 8. Uh, If you have that Bible in your lap, that that black Bible that we just read from, know that that's a gift to us. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to just take that home with you. Um, And it would be a delight for us to, um, to serve you in that way. Uh, we want this to be a place, if, you, if this is maybe your first time at Christ King, you haven't been here before, I want you to know that this, this is a place where uh, everyone who comes into this room, we believe, needs a Savior. Uh, whether you've been coming to church your whole life or this is your first time to show up at uh, a religious thing ever, uh, we, we believe that all of us show up on equal footing, equally in need of a Savior, but we also believe here in this church that there is a great Savior for our need. And so every time we open up his word, uh, we consider who this Savior claims to be, Jesus Christ. And so let's do that together. Now we're going to do that um, by looking at three things this morning, if you're taking notes. Um, 
First, the darkness of life. Second, the light of life. And then so what? The darkness, the light, so what? So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study together. Lord, um, we do pray that this time wouldn't just be a time for us to study your word, but also to hear from your word and to hear from you. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word and that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our minds um, to receive all that you would have for us. And we pray that as we do that, as we listen to you, um, that you would show us more of who your son Jesus is and that you might draw us closer to him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So it was about 60 years ago, there was this artwork that was sold. And it was sold kind of in like this garage sale sort of situation. There were no headlines about it. It sold for $60. Uh, The person who bought it described this artwork as a dark and gloomy wreck. But they bought it because it looked old. It looked like something that had been attempted to be restored at some point, and so they purchased this artwork. Well, in 2013, that same artwork was sold for a pretty good profit. It was sold for $10,000 because that artwork was believed to be from the school of Leonardo da Vinci, meaning he didn't paint it, but the, the way that da Vinci worked and many other Renaissance painters, they would paint, and then people who were studying under them would look at that and then copy that painting. And so this painting had been copied thousands of times all across the globe um, by people who were studying Leonardo da Vinci. And this was believed to be an old copy from da Vinci. But just four years later, in 2017, that same painting that was bought for $60 60 years ago was sold for the most money that any painting has ever been sold before because it was discovered using all kinds of infrared technology things that I didn't really understand when I was reading this article about this story. It was discovered to be the original, one of about 20 original da Vinci paintings in existence today. And so that painting sold for $450 million in 2017. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Dear Lord, please help me to find a painting like that one. No. Uh, I mean, just unbelievable. But here's the kicker. Here's what I love about that story. The name of the painting is Salvatore Mundi, which is translated Savior of the World. It's a painting of Jesus with his hand raised and he's holding the world in his other hand. And what is stunning about this painting is that for years, experts studied this painting, they looked at it and said, it's not the real thing. It's not the real, it's not the real Salvatore Mundi. Until finally they realized that it was. And that's kind of what's going on in this story. In John chapter 8, the real Salvatore Mundi, the real savior of the world is right there. The experts are all around them and they don't get it. They don't see that it's the real savior of the world who's in their midst. The light has come. And so Jesus, in this story where he's giving this, he's having this discourse with these religious leaders, with these Pharisees, Jesus is there gathered in Jerusalem with so many other people because it's the Feast of the Booths. And that's important to know, to to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying in John chapter eight. 
Because the, the Feast of the Booths was when the people of Israel gathered every year and they remembered that God showed up to them when they were in the darkness. It, it's when they remembered when they were wandering in the wilderness and God showed up as a pillar of fire, a pillar of light in the darkness of their wilderness. And this theme of, of light and dark plays all throughout the Bible. I mean, Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, there's darkness over the face of the deep. And what is God's first thing he does? He speaks and creates light in the darkness. And this theme of God showing up in the dark, of, of God bringing his light into the dark, plays all throughout the rest of the Bible. We see it in the book of Exodus, the darkness of 400 years of slavery that Israel is in Egypt. And then once they are freed by God, they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And the prophet Jeremiah describes that wilderness experience as a land of deep darkness. And yet it's in that darkness that God shows up. It's in the darkness of, of Egypt when, in slavery when, when God shows up to Moses as a burning bush, a bush with light. And when Moses gets close to that bush, he realizes that it's not on fire. It's not, it's not actually burning the way you and I would imagine, but instead there is light emanating from the bush, but the bush is not being burned up. And one of the things that theologians have drawn out of this, which this is a fun theological word, is the aseity of God. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And basically that means the self-existence of God. That God, he doesn't need to burn up that bush in order for there to be light. He doesn't need the fuel from that bush in order to burn it. God is in that bush. That bush is light, but it's not burning because God is self-sustaining. He is the first. He is the unmoved mover. And, and here's why I, I want to draw that out, because the best kind of person to be with you in the darkness is someone who doesn't need anything from you. And that's how God reveals himself, even in the Old Testament. That he, he's a God who doesn't need to take anything from us. He has everything he needs in his own being. Uh, I, I saw a cartoon depicting something like this uh, years ago. I don't remember exactly how it went, but it was something like there, there were these different panels. And the panels were describing uh, how people deal with others who are going through grief or sadness. So the, the first panel depicts this person, they're, they're at the bottom of this dark pit, they're in the darkness. And the first person walks up in that, in that cartoon and they stand at the edge of the pit and they look down and they say, you'll be okay, this will all work out. And that's how some of us deal with folks who are in the dark, who are in the pit, who are in grief. And in the second panel, the next person comes up to the edge of the pit and they say, I'm guilty of this too. And I don't know if it's always bad to do this, but they just come up to the pit and they go, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Right? And in the third panel, someone comes up to the edge of the pit. They look down and they say, you've been in there a long time. Are you okay? 
And then the fourth panel, someone comes into the pit, and this time they drop the ladder down. They drop the ladder down, and they say, hey, I'll be here whenever you're ready to talk. But you know where this is going, I bet. The fifth panel. The fifth panel, somebody climbs down the ladder, and they get into the pit. They get into the pit, and they say, I'm here, and I'm with you. That, that is a picture of how God is with his people when they're in the darkness. And because he is self-sustaining, because he doesn't need anything from us in our grief or in our sadness, he is the best light to have come join us in the pit. He doesn't need our affirmation or validation. He doesn't need to feel helpful while we're in our the midst of our grief, he's not in a hurry to see us all better again. He is the definition of a non-anxious presence. And what we see all throughout the Bible is that he's with his people in the dark. He's with Israel in the dark of the wilderness after they escape Egypt. And he's there as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And this is, when Israel, this is what Israel is both celebrating and remembering when Jesus says what he says in John 8. And it's very likely that many of them are feeling that same kind of darkness. They are under the thumb of Roman oppression. And they are gathered together, they're gathering together for this feast, and they're remembering, and by the way, if you were a kid, this was your favorite time. Because the reason it was called the Feast of Booths, kids, is what you did is you built a fort with your mom and dad in Jerusalem and you lived in it for seven days. I bet it got real in those booths, by the way. Just imagine that, seven days in a fort. They did that. They did that to remember that God was with them when they were wandering in the wilderness and they were living in temporary shelters like booths like, or tabernacles, they called them. And they remember that God was with them as light. And one of the ways that they would remember this is in the temple. And I think one of the reasons in verse 20 it tells us where Jesus is standing in the temple when he's teaching this is because he's very near where they would have lit lamps. They would have lit lamps in the evening so that there would be light emanating from the temple, the tallest place in the city of Jerusalem. And the people who are all you know, camping out, out in their booths, would look up and they would see the light emanating from the temple. They would hear the songs being sung in the temple and they would remember that when we were in the darkness, God showed up. He showed up as light. And it's then that Jesus plants his heels in the ground and he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What an audacious claim to make. To claim that he is showing up as the light. I'm sure that there, there are the people there are wondering, is, is God going to show up again? Does God care that we're in the darkness of this Roman oppression? Perhaps you felt that. Does God care that I am in a dark situation right now? Does God even want to be with me in my mental health struggle? 
or in the darkness of my addiction or in the darkness of those panic attacks that come at the worst time or in the darkness of my loneliness at home or in school or the darkness of my secret struggles or my fears about my children or the darkness of just physical chronic pain the darkness of a scary prognosis from a doctor does God care to be with us and what Jesus is declaring at the feast of the booths is that God is showing up in the darkest of situations once again and he intends to continue to do that because Jesus says he's the light of life Second point, light of life. As soon as Jesus says this, claims this, there's opposition to this. The religious folks are opposed to Jesus claiming this. In verse 13, they say, why should we believe you? You're bearing witness about yourself. Like no one else is saying this about you. You're, you're bearing witness about yourself. And maybe you, you've had this, a similar doubt about Jesus. Like why, why trust him? And Jesus' answer to this is consider where I came from and who sent me. This is what he's saying in verse 14 and 16. He's saying, I am, I've come from heaven and I have been sent by the Father. And then he says in verse 17, in your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who bears witness who, who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus is saying, I, I come and I'm, I've come from the Father. And when they hear this, they realize Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. We may not hear it the same way, but I want you to see that. Jesus is not leaving them space to think, oh, man, look at this, just this is a sweet teacher from Nazareth, just a nice guy. He doesn't really know what he's talking about though, but isn't that sweet and special? Jesus isn't so nice. He is not giving them space for that. Jesus does does not give space for us to leave an interaction with him neutral about Jesus, which is how a lot of people in our world today would maybe describe their relationship to Jesus. Jesus is fine. Maybe I don't like a lot of his followers, but Jesus is okay. But Jesus isn't leaving space for that. Because he's claiming something that lunatics might claim. He's claiming to be God. A lunatic would claim that, a liar would claim that, or as C.S. Lewis said, or the Lord would claim that. That is what Jesus is doing here. And I want you to see how clearly he's doing that and how offensive it would have been to somebody who doesn't, doesn't believe that, he, he, starts using, he starts using the name that God told Moses to use for God when God showed up as light, as the burning bush. When God said, when, when Moses said, who, who should I tell, tell Pharaoh sent me? I am that I am. The I am sent you. The one who is self-existing. Jesus says that word, that name, I am, 
multiple times in this discourse. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself. Verse 24, unless you believe that I am he. Verse 28, then you will know that I am he. And at this point, you may be wondering, well, maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe Jesus is saying first-person pronoun and then am afterwards. Like, is he really invoking the name of God? Well, if you read a little bit longer in this discourse, verse 58, they start talking about Abraham. And like, what are you, how can you have all this like authoritative um, speech about Abraham? Were you there before Abraham was? And he says, before Abraham was, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew what he was saying then because that's when they picked up rocks to stone him because that's what you do with a blasphemer. Jesus is claiming to be God. And he's saying that the Father has given witness to this. He's given witness to this at the baptism of Christ when Jesus is baptized and the Father declares, this is my son with whom I am well pleased to listen to him. But the Father has also borne witness to this through the prophets, telling of his servant who would come. And as I read commentaries about John 8, um, a number of them said that Jesus is very likely, he very likely has Isaiah 43 in mind during this discourse. Isaiah 43 is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which it's just crazy when you read those servant songs. They're written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up and they are prophetic about him. It, it is amazing when you begin reading those, those books, or those chapters of that book. But Isaiah 43.10, again, uh, the Lord is talking about those who will witness to and verify that Jesus is who he says he is. And he describes all of the nations in Isaiah 43.10 coming. And God says to the nations, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God is saying that you're going to bear, nations, you're going to bear witness to my servant and then you're going to know that I am he. The I am is the servant. And Jesus is now showing up. He's showing up hundreds of years later. He's showing up and he's saying, the glory and the light of God is here now in your midst. The great I am, the one who spoke light into existence is here now. The light of the burning bush, that light is here now. The light of God that this feast commemorates that dwelt in the wilderness with the people when they were wandering in the tabernacles in the wilderness, that light, the pillar of fire, that light is here now. I am the light. The light that filled the temple when we constructed the temple and finished it and the Shekinah glory and light of God came and filled the temple and it was so just unbelievable and overwhelming that the priests in 2 Chronicles 7 had to like run out of the place, that glorious light is here in the temple again, now, in the flesh. I am the light 
of the world. Jesus is in the temple and he is the new temple. The new temple of God dwelling with us in the darkness. He has come so near to them because that is what God does with us in the dark. And one of the things that light does, light can be scary sometimes. I woke up at like 5.30 this morning, like went in to get the shower, and I turned on the light, and I turned on the wrong switch, which is like the overpowering lights in our bathroom instead of the dim lights. And it was just like, <laughs> do you ever do that? You know, you just, I turned, I was like, oh, I wasn't ready for it. Light, it, it exposes us. And when, when Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, there is something about that that, that can actually be terrifying. But I want you to see that, uh, that he is a, he's a different kind of light. He's the best light. And I, I think that when, um, I think there's a little gift to us that's given to us in John 8 right before this that's, that's illustrating the kind of light that Jesus is. Now, if you look in your Bibles, especially if you have that black Bible in front of you, you look at this, it says this. At the top of John 8, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. You see that? So what that means is the earliest manuscripts that we have of the book of John, um, they, they don't include this story, which means it's most likely true that John did not write that. And so it's one of the reasons I'm not like preaching a whole sermon on it because we, we don't believe that that portion of, that, that's in our Bibles is the inspired word of God. That, that's something that somebody, when they were copying the book of John from one copy to another to give to somebody else, somebody had this story about Jesus and it, and it came to their mind um, and it, I think it maybe came to their mind because of all this talk that Jesus has about judgment in this passage that we just read. And so that scribe added this story, added this story about Jesus in, in John 8. So it means that we don't preach it as authoritative, but it is helpful to, to know and it, and it can be in, instructive and interesting, really. And you know what the story is? It's a, it's a pretty well-known story that we see in, that, we, that you maybe have heard before. It's when this woman is caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus by these Pharisees. And it says she's caught like in, in the midst of adultery. They don't bring the guy, they bring her. And they, who knows how much time they gave, her, they gave her to put herself together. And so she's brought in all of her shame and she's brought into the light. She's brought into the light in front of all of these people and what is the light of God going to do to her. Well, Jesus looks at all of these men who are testing him because they know the law. Jesus looks at them, he says, He who is without sin casts the first stone. The law says the stoner, he who is without sin casts the first one. And they all leave. They all leave except one. There's one person there who is without sin who stays Jesus. Jesus stays, he's without sin. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, see, there's no one here to condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, Jesus, when, the, when, when, 
all of the truth is brought into the light before him, the truth of ourselves, when we bring the truth of ourselves into the light before Jesus, we don't get condemnation, we get grace. That's what repentance is. Repentance is bringing the truth of yourself before Jesus and looking to him for grace. And he gives that to sinners. He gives it to sinners. And so I think whoever added that maybe wanted us to understand a little bit more of the kind of light that Jesus is. That he is the kind of light where there is grace to be found and he is the kind of light that comes near into the darkness of our experience and of our lives. Andrew Peterson um, is a musician and an author and uh, just I love a lot of the stuff that he, that he writes. I recently read this book of his called um, God of the, the God of the Garden. And in it, um, Peterson talks about a time in his life where he was going through um, a lot of grief and sadness and felt very alone, felt like God was being silent. And so he went on a silent retreat to um, a monastery called um, the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. He was there for three days, and by the third day, he, uh, he woke up that morning, and he was just disappointed. He felt like, I've, I came out here, I've been, I haven't said a thing, I've been listening for God, and God's not speaking. And so he decided he was gonna, he was gonna leave early. Before, before the sun had even risen, he goes, throws his, his bag in the car, and he's about to pull out, and he sees a sign that's pointing into the woods, and the only thing on the sign is statues. So his curiosity gets the better of him. He walks out into the woods, and he walks for over an hour, and he finally comes across these three ancient-looking statues of men sleeping on the ground. And he wonders for a second, but then he remembers, this is the Abbey of Gethsemane. So these men sleeping on the ground, it's Peter, James, and John. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked his disciples to stay up and pray for him. They fell asleep. And so as he walked past, he anticipated the statue that he would see next, but he wasn't prepared for it. And this is what he writes. Dead in the center, frozen in the gray light, was the statue of a man in a state of desperation. This was no classical pietistic display of a barely human Christ. No, this was different. He looked to have stumbled to his knees. His back was arced, his head thrown back. His hands covered his face so that his elbows were splayed out. His friends were asleep, and all the dormant trees were sleeping too. Not even his own creation kept watch with him that morning as he knelt in the terrible silence of that lonesome forest. Then I too fell to my knees and wept wanting strangely to comfort him, to tell him he wasn't alone, that I'd walked through a freezing wilderness to be with him, that I would keep watch, dear master. With a gust, the knowledge swept into me that I knew my Savior better in the silence than I had ever known him in the song. Oh, Lord, how precious is your weeping presence with those who weep. How much better is your companionship in the deep darkness than your absence in the light. I was not alone. I had never been alone. My own descent into the dark woods of desolation were merely a footpath to the heart of Christ. Christ who went to the grove to pray. Christ who asked his friends to keep watch with him. Christ 
who in his anguish turned his face not away from the Father, but to him, who aimed his questions at the silent dome of heaven and got an angry mob for an answer. I also went to the woods for an answer and found Jesus. I demanded words and was given instead the silent, weeping word that echoes in the lonely wood of every sorrowful heart, the word all the books in the world cannot contain. In the dark night of my soul, he was the friend who kept watch. This, this, friends, is the light that Jesus is claiming to be. The light who comes into our darkness. That's why Jesus says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. When they lift him up, friends, it will be the night after Gethsemane. When they lift him up on the cross, Jesus is saying he's that kind of light. He's the I am who has stepped into our darkness so much so that he took our darkness upon himself. You remember what happens when he dies? Darkness. Darkness over the earth. The light of the world snuffed out so that we can have life. Y'all, this is how committed, this is how committed the God of the Bible is to bringing you into his light. That he would step into our darkness, that he would actually take his darkness upon himself, the darkness of our sin and our guilt and our shame, that he would take it upon himself and be swallowed up in the dark grave so that he might rise in victory, and with him we might rise too. So what? Briefly, so what? Some of you need to hear that Jesus is ready to meet you in the darkness of your grief and suffering. That he's with you. Some of you need to hear that Jesus is ready to meet you in the darkness of your sin, and then if you bring it to the light, he will not condemn you. Some of you have already received, received Christ's forgiveness by grace through faith and you need to hear that he's calling you out of the dark of your sin once again because he's good and he loves you and he's calling you to participate in being a light with him. That's what's so crazy about the gospel is we aren't only redeemed and reconciled to God, we are redeemed and then reconciled to one another to be lights to the world. It's like what Link was talking about a second ago. It's why, it's why we do things like the traveling table. It's why we're doing things like this because we want, to, we want to love our neighbor not just in order to convert them. We want to love our neighbors because we've been converted. We wanna, we wanna love our neighbors and bear the light of Christ because we actually believe the new tabernacle is us. The place where the spirit of God dwells, the light of the world, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, Ephesians 5, 8, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Christian, you carry the light of God to those around you and you do this by following Jesus in the same way that he submitted to his father by taking up your cross and following Jesus and serving and loving people so that the light of God might shine in and through you. And if you aren't yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. 
And I want you to consider what Jesus claims, that he is the light, that he is the kind of light that you can bring all of yourself to and find grace. And he welcomes you to believe in him because he doesn't stay far removed from your darkness, but he enters in. That God became a man to rescue sinners like me and you. And he offers his grace. He's the true savior of the world. He came and was in our midst. So don't miss him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Help us to believe that he is with us even now. May we experience his nearness as we celebrate this feast together. We pray in his name, amen.